Please be seated. I know that some of you have read The Innovators, a book by Walter Isaacson. I know this because you've been encouraging me to read it, and I'm glad you did. It's the story of how many men and women were involved in the invention of the computer. And, and it's also about other related technological advances and the story of parallel innovations in financing new work and in innovative management structures for the development of extraordinary inventions and so on. Interesting book. The phenomena of innovation and advances in knowledge usually, as we know, do not run in a straight line. And that becomes clear in this book. We learn more, of more than one occasion of someone working on a project only to find that the answer or the solution was found by someone else, a colleague in a different lab in a different country, perhaps a couple of months earlier. In one lovely acknowledgement of this reality, a man called Jack Kilby was awarded the Nobel Prize for Physics in 2000. And the first thing he did was praise and thank his longtime collaborator, Robert Noyce. Noyce had died a few years earlier, and apparently you have to be alive to receive a Nobel Prize, something I didn't, didn't know before. And a, a Swedish physicist introduced Kirby, Kilby at this, uh, at this ceremony by saying that his invention had launched the global digital revolution. And Kilby responded with some humility, saying, when I hear that kind of thing, it reminds me of what the beaver told the rabbit as they stood at the base of the Hoover Dam. No, I didn't build it myself, but it's based on an idea of mine. <laughs> Great innovation requires a playful imagination and the ability to conceive the inconceivable. And it also requires a capacity for dogged hard work in pursuit of the dream. In another story from the book, a man called J. Preska Eckert Jr., who was known as Press, was one of the men who, who brought about into being inventions that were critical to the U.S. war effort in the 1940s. But he was also playful. And, uh, and Walter Isaacson tells of this playfulness by talking about when, when uh, Press was a student at Penn University, he created what he called an, oscul an osculometer from the Latin word for mouth. And, and, and the idea was this osculometer was to measure the passion and romantic electricity of a kiss. And a couple would hold the handles of the device and then kiss their lip contact, completing an electric circuit. And a row of bulbs would light up. And the goal was to kiss passionately enough to light up all ten and get a blast from a foghorn. Now, smart contestants knew, we're told, that wet kisses and sweaty palms increased the circuit's conductivity. In other words, press was having fun. It's a sign of a certain kind of freedom, certain kind of capacity to imagine new possibilities into being. The opposite of this innovative and playful capacity is to be stuck in a kind of imaginative dark ages in which nothing much changes, in which life seems like a rut, in which we keep on trying to change things by doing the same things only harder, a rat race, same old, same old, series of compromises where we're just plumb stuck. That is the opposite of playful, creative inventiveness. And it was the affliction of the wicked and lazy slave in our parable of the talents. He was the one who buried the master's money in the ground 
and so was cons for his trouble was consigned to the outer darkness with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, anyone among the first to listen to Jesus tell this parable would have been horrified by it and disturbed by it because anyone listening would have known that this master was clearly a bad guy. They wouldn't think this is God. They would say this is a bad guy who reaps where he does not sow. And the slaves weren't much better. In fact, in a, in a place of complete scarcity, it's, if you started making money, you were probably understood to be making it at someone else's expense. And so you were distinctly dodgy. The responsible thing to do, the good person, the righteous person, would probably bury the money, keep it safe for the master's return. So Jesus, in this parable, was shocking. He appears to be praising gambling, or worse, usury, which they knew was prohibited. I mean, he praises bankers for crying out loud and condemning responsible, prudent action. What is going on here? It's really, really shocking in that light. This last servant, once called by the translators of the first translators of the New English Bible, once called a lazy rascal, which doesn't quite get the vehemence of the parable, this last servant, the lazy rascal, has allowed his imaginative horizon to become limited by his assumptions about the master, limited by his own anxiety, limited by his own fear, limited by his lack of imagination. He knew the master to be harsh, reaping where he did not sow, and gathering where he did not scatter any seed. He was trying to keep his head down. He didn't want trouble, couldn't imagine any other outcome. He was limited by his own imaginative horizon. And in contrast, the other slaves couldn't wait to have some fun. I mean, the master does it. Let's get out there. They went at once to start trading, each according to their ability. Brothers and sisters, while life might be going really well for some of us individually, our society is stuck. Our society is stuck in what a former teacher of mine, known to some in the parish called Ed Friedman, called imaginative gridlock. He says we can know a system is gridlocked when we find ourselves or see others on an unending treadmill trying to get change by trying harder at the same old strategy, burying the talent in the ground. He sees gridlock when we are constantly looking for new answers to old questions. Maybe I should bury the talent somewhere more secure instead of imagining playing with it. An imaginative gridlock is marked by binary, dualistic, either-or thinking. It's the only option to being responsible to act irresponsibly. A stuck society is marked by blaming, people blaming each other all the time, by by herding into our own little clubs and parties over against others. The, the stuck society is marked by an everlasting search for the quick fix or the next new thing or the thing that's going to excite us or the what's happening now and yet not actually changing anything. That society is stuck. Is there any other way to describe a society reflected our society as we are reflected in the current state of our congressional government. Certainly the sense of being stuck has been reflected in the institutions of Western Christianity as anxieties about our institutional survival have led to a kind all the marks of imaginative gridlock and consequent decline. Neither church nor state 
are going to be saved from this by electing a new set of leaders. And God bless all those who offer themselves for public service, but they are not magicians. They're not going to get us unstuck by going and doing the same thing, only harder. Ed Friedman saw the medieval period of dark ages as just such a time. In a leadership book published posthumously, it was called A Failure of Nerve, he wrote this. He wrote, contributing to the general malaise in the Middle Ages was a combination of political, social, economic, and theological downers. Late 15th century Europe, despite its glorious cathedrals, emerging artists, developing networks of universities, was a society that was living in the wake of the plagues, the breakdown of feudal order, and the increasing inability of an often hypocritical, hypocritical and corrupt church's capacity to ring true. In addition, Moorish encirclement had proved invulnerable to centuries of crusades and now severely limited Europe's access to the riches and delights of the Far East. There had not been, he says, a major scientific discovery for a thousand years. Then he goes on to talk about Christopher Columbus and Columbus's discovery of the New World in particular as being the event that unleashed unbelievable artistic and scientific creativity over the next hundred years of rebirth. In other words, Columbus, he's saying, was unlocked the imagination, and what happened was the Renaissance. All the leading figures of the Renaissance were born within a few years of Columbus coming to the new world. Getting unstuck begins with a spirit of adventure, a willingness to live into new imaginative horizons. Yes, the iPhone was the invention of the year in 2007, but actually it was technology that had been around for a while. But Walter Isaacson points out that in 2011, Apple and Google spent more on lawsuits and payments involving patents than they did on the research and development of new products. Brothers and sisters, we are stuck. We are stuck. Surely, the existential import of Jesus' parable of the talents for us today is a reminder that more gridlock in Washington or Atlanta or our own hearts is already a consignment to darkness. The alternative is imaginative experiments, playful experiments, creativity, which we, ins which we allow ourselves in multiple ways. You know, I know that many are looking forward to Thanksgiving, but I also know that some experience the coming of holidays with a kind of ennui or a kind of dread. Well, what happens to just change it up? You know, lemongrass turkey. I don't know. <laughs> Something. Just have some fun, you know. I know that many feel stuck in jobs that you hate. If we asked to put our hands up, there would be some hands here. Are you stuck at work? Well, what might be an alternative other than seeking different work or a new job somewhere else? Could it be that there's a way to change the nature of the work itself so that it's fun? Reframing the question as to why you do what you do and staying connected with everyone around you, managing your own feelings as they resist whatever change it is that you imagine. It's not easy, this creative, inventive piece. It requires doggedness and work, but it's a way forward. Or are you stuck in the major relationship of your life, your partnership, your marriage? Well, is there an alternative to trying to reignite the old spark and get something that used to have going again? Is there 
an alternative to ditching this relation, going and trying to do it again with someone else. Hopes of finding a better one. Surely those are ways of being consigned to outer darkness with no relief from the gnashing of teeth. How can you let yourself stop being so deadly serious to allow some unmitigated, unjustifiable, but nonetheless fun playfulness to emerge? Can we overcome our guilt about not meeting the expectations of others just long enough to move forward toward getting unstuck, stimulating the imagination, expanding our horizons, reframing the questions, and participating in the work of God who is forever bringing new possibilities into being. We live in ever-expanding universes, and that means universes of possibility. And when we creative, when we are creative, we are participating in the work of God. That work doesn't begin in Washington, D.C. The spiritual work of imagination begins in each one of us. Where are you stuck? Are you willing to invest yourself for newness of life? It is as we each, every one of us, start living more imaginatively, more creatively, that we will begin to hear that voice from the heart of the universe saying, well done. There is abundance. There is abundance of grace, abundance of love, abundance of possibility. Well done, good and trustworthy friend. When you're having fun, enter into the deepest joy imaginable. Well done. Enter into the deepest joy imaginable. In our customary time of silence, can you commit to finding ways to be playful and imaginative and not so deadly serious in the days to come? Because you'd then be committing yourself to serving as a leaven in the world of imaginative gridlock and so ministering in the name of Jesus, Jesus who led the way and who showed the way and who makes the way possible today. Can you do that? In silence and in response to the gospel, let us pray. <laughs>